No sensei. No mercy. My name is Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, and I, I just want to say welcome, uh, just to kind of catch you up a little bit, we are in a series called Fight for Your Life, where we've been discussing spiritual warfare, and right now we are in episode nine, or really uh, message nine of this series, and so you may hear some things today that you may not have heard before, or some maybe some things that maybe you had questions about, and, and, and the discussion might be something that you might would like some more further study or information, I invite you to go to our website at www.vlchurch.tv. And there on the website, you can navigate to our messages online and you can catch back up over the course of this series, as well as we are also available on YouTube. And uh, uh, YouTube, we broadcast live. So those of you that are watching on YouTube right now, we say welcome to you as well. But uh, we are nearing the end of this series, Fight for Your Life. And for those of you that have been with us, I hope that this has been an enlightening uh, series for you as it has been for me. It is never easy to challenge yourself with difficult truths and things that are, that are maybe hard to grasp, especially truths that reveal to us how the enemy is at work in our lives. We have a real enemy. Jesus revealed to us and even battled with this very same enemy himself through the life of his life and ministry. Uh, and we've been talking about how this enemy works in our lives and the way he tries to, to bring dysfunction and, and destruction into our lives. But we've also been discovering through this series how we can take courage to know that through Christ's finished work on the cross, we have already been assured the victory. The victory is ours through Christ's work on the cross. And so we're not going to really get into how the enemy works today uh, because the, the two weeks ago or, or the two sessions ago, we talked about how he's been disarmed. Though he is powerful, he is disarmed. He has no power. The power resides in the believer who's filled up with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Last, the last session, we talked about walking in the power of the Spirit. And so today, I want to talk to you about a very vital and necessary step in this war against the enemy, and this is about self-defense. Somebody say self-defense. Self-defense. When you are engaged in a conflict or in a battle, it's not enough to be in the battle, right? You need to know how to defend yourself, or else you're going to get whooped. 
right? And this is why, you know, when we were teenagers or, or kids, every time we'd see movies like The Karate Kid, which is where the audio from the setup video came from, we'd watch that video, and we'd see that movie, we'd see that crane technique, and we'd be like, that dude's a bad mamma jamma. I'm going to go sign up for karate class. I'm going to learn how to do that stuff so I can defend myself, right? It's not enough just to be in the battle. You need to know how to defend yourself to have a chance at victory. So to walk in self-defense as a believer in Christ, defense against the enemy and the forces of evil, you have to first begin by partnering with the Holy Spirit in faith. That's where it begins. And to remove what is defiling you, what is opening doors for spirits to attack you. Uh, to remove what is defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your very heart and your home. For we are the temple of his spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. And when we invite evil into our lives, uh, whether we know it or, unknow or unknowingly, we are entering or uh, inviting things to come and defile God's very home. Uh, and it's not enough just to ask God for forgiveness. The scripture is true. We ask God to forgive us. He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But it is not enough in this battle just to ask God for forgiveness. God does forgive when we ask. But forgiveness does not equal deliverance. They're two different things. Forgiveness does not equal deliverance from demonic attack. And as we look in Scripture, there are really three basic steps. There, there were kind of multiple steps within these, but three basic categories or steps that we need to walk through as a believer each and every day of our lives in order to defend ourselves against the enemy, steps that the Lord has built into his eternal kingdom. And if we follow these steps, we will take back the ground the enemy has stolen or manipulated away from us in our lives. But before we can discuss how to do that, we really need to understand why we need to do that. You know, it's a common saying, if, if you've ever flown or ridden in an airplane, just before the plane takes off, the stewardess stands in front with a microphone and goes through a whole host of instructions. And uh, in those instructions, often they will say, and if they don't, they're a bad stewardess, so you have to report that. But uh, they'll say, if at any time during the flight, the masks fall from the top compartment, they say, you are to put the mask over yourself first. Have you heard that? You know what I'm talking about? It should be very common, very familiar. The reason is, is because the cabin pressure can drop so rapidly fast that if you don't put it over yourself first, then you might not be strong enough or able to help the person next to you who might also be struggling. And I know that's a challenge for parents, especially if I was riding with my four kids. The moment those things would drop, my first instinct to protect them would be get the masks over them, over them as quickly as possible. Because they're really not going to have any idea. They're probably not paying attention to those instructions. So they'll be like, oh, something to play with, you know, and it falls down, right? They wouldn't know what to do. So if I'm struggling to try to get the masks over them, I might be compromised and in turn compromise them. So in an airplane situation, it is important that you protect yourself first so that you are able and strong enough to then protect those around you. And this is also true for the church of Jesus Christ. We need to walk in self-defense. We need to walk in self-deliverance, to be so filled with Jesus so that when other people are in need, we don't end up compromising the both of us. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul tells the church of Galatia, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, 
If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And notice he says, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So there can be a kind of an arrogance or an overconfidence in the church and in the lives of believers to think, I'm strong enough to help this person. I, I, I'm strong enough to just go and help them with their issues. I'm, I don't have to worry about falling into the same trap. But you see, we serve a powerful God who can deliver, but we're also fighting against an evil, deceptive, serpentine spirit called Satan who knows how to get in and, dis- and, uh, and disrupt the life of a believer. He knows how to get in in an effect. And if we walk in with pride and arrogance and think we're too strong or we're strong enough to handle these things, we have already fooled ourselves. We've already fooled. We need to be careful not to fall into the same temptation. If we are not filled up with the presence of God and prepared to fight the schemes of the enemy as we go to help others, we may be too weak and defenseless to stand and subsequently fall into Satan's trap ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, he says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Notice this isn't a, a corporate plea. This is a personal plea. He says, be strong in the Lord so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. This is a personal fight that we're in. We are in this fight collectively, but this is also something that we fight personally. And if we are not personally prepared to handle the schemes of the devil, we may not be able to stand firm against all of the strategies. And that is the goal. The goal in spiritual warfare and self-defense in this spiritual battle is to stand firm against the attacks of Satan, which means not only do we stand up to them, but we endure them and we overcome them. That is the goal. And now the subject of Satan and demons tends to make people squeamish and a little fearful and intimidated. And we have a tendency to kind of run away from it. And we think, you know, naturally, if we just ignore the problem and pretend like it doesn't exist, that it will just go away. But as we've discovered through this study over the course of these many weeks, that when the enemy takes ground in your life, when he gains leverage in or a foothold in your life, he does not just get bored and wander away. He builds a stronghold on the ground. He takes it, he reinforces it with troops, and he uses it to implement the very purpose of the devil, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. There's no running away from it. It's either fight it or surrender to it. Paul tells us we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is military technology, talking about battle. Think about the United States Armed Forces. Think about the troops that so powerfully and successfully defend us against evils in the world. Imagine if on the battlefield in foreign lands, in, let's say even Iraq or, or one of the places we're currently serving now, if our United States troops just kind of stayed in their, their tents in, the, in, their, in their fortress or in, in their, uh, their base, and the enemy starts lobbing grenades and missiles and shooting 50 cal bullets into the base, and, and they, they start lobbing mortars in there, what would happen if our U.S. military just said, oh, just ignore it, it'll go away? Just ignore it. Pretend like it's not happening. Does it go away? No. Because the enemy will increase attack, will continue to take ground until they've penetrated the stronghold and killed everyone in the base. 
And this is the same methodology our enemy uses. He continues to gain ground and lob attack until he can bring about his plans to steal, kill, and destroy. And we have an epidemic of spiritual losses in the church and have for many times because instead of standing firm against the enemy, we've retreated and run away. We've plugged our ears and said, ah, I don't want to hear it. I'll just pretend like it doesn't exist. But I declare to you today, that to be no more. It's time for the church to rise up and take a stand and to stand up boldly in the name of Jesus. Our key verse today is found in James chapter 4, verse 7. You can mark this in your notes. And we're, we're going to cover several scriptures today and a lot of content. And so I encourage you to get out your worship guide and, and take some notes down for study later. But James says this to the church in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Notice, Satan doesn't flee until we what? Resist. Satan has no reason to flee unless we come against him. When the church stands against Satan, it is Satan who flees the battlefield, not the church. The church is victorious. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and it's time that we sent the enemy packing and on the run in fear for his life as the church of Jesus Christ. But before we can do that as a collective whole, as the assembly of God's church, each of us need to be, just as Paul encouraged us, to be strong in the Lord, mighty in his power, and decked out with the whole armor of God. And I believe the reason why we've given up so much ground over the years, and even in our own lives personally, how, why we fled the battlefield rather than march together toward victory is because many of us don't even know what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be in Christ. We, we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We know we should come to church and to sing the songs, but to know what it means in our hearts and the depths of us, what it is to be a child of God, we just don't really understand now, I'm reminded of a, a movie that came out several years ago. It's called The Knight's Tale, uh, starring Heath Ledger. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It wasn't real popular. Many people became a fan of Heath Ledger when he starred as the Joker in the, the Batman series. But my wife and I, we kind of became fans of his early on when he was in the movie A Knight's Tale. Uh, in this movie, it was set in medieval times. And the princess, the damsel in distress, her name was Jocelyn. And that's where we got the name for our oldest daughter. And so we've been a fan uh, of this movie for some time. But when I think about spiritual warfare, when I think about uh, knowing who you are and your identity, I think about this movie. Because in this movie, Heath Ledger's character, William, he was poor. He was a servant. His dad actually kind of gave him over to be a servant to a knight. And in this story, in this time, the knights would travel from place to place, kingdom to kingdom, and they would battle each other in games, kind of like Olympics. They would, they would do sword fighting, and they would joust, and you know, jousting was the big, the big game. If you were the jousting champion, you were like the top dog in all the land. And William, since a young age, wanted to become a knight. However, in this story, it was illegal for anyone who wasn't of noble birth to compete in the games. So, of course, since he was a slave or a servant, a poor person, he wasn't ever able to compete and thus had no hopes of becoming a knight. Well, as they got older, he and his friends that had been serving the same night were at this match, and the knight took a deadly blow and died 
after uh, one round of jousting, and they're trying to figure out what are they going to do because their next meal literally depended on him winning this uh, match. And so William, or Heath Ledger's character, decided that he would put on the armor and ride in his place, and hopefully if he just survived, they would win enough to be able to eat. So they went with the plan, and he got rocked, you know, for a loop. He stayed on his horse and ended up surviving, and so he won uh, some winnings. And at the time they were doing their award ceremony, the king or the, the person in charge asked him to remove his helmet, and that would have exposed him, and he'd been found out to be an impersonator, and except uh, the, the blow that he took during the match had bent the helmet on his head, and he wasn't able to take the helmet off, so he got away with it. And, uh, and because he got away with it, he and his friends decided, hey, we could probably do this for a living. So they decided to impersonate a knight and go around and do all these different competitions and, and become rich and famous. And, and they joined some friends along the way, and, and they began to do it. And over time, he became a crowd favorite and a champion in jousting, and he was the top dog, and things were going just the way he planned. And just before the championship match, the bad guy in the film, because there always has to be a bad guy, finds out his real identity and rats him out. That's what bad guys do. And so uh, the day of the championship match, he's going to compete. The guards stop him. He's arrested. He's stripped of his armor, and he's thrown in jail. He gets put in the stocks, so he's put on public display and shame before everyone to see. And during his rise to fame, he actually has a chance encounter with the crown prince. He's kind of like the king. And the crown prince was hiding his person or his, his identity too. And because of the interaction that he and William had, uh, the, he actually won some respect from the crown prince. And so at once William was in jail and he was in bondage, he was hanging there on public display and in shame and full view of the people, the crown prince heard about this and had compassion on him. So he goes to visit William in his bonds, and, and he says that, you know, you had compassion on me, and, and you did me a favor when I was trying to hide my identity, so I'm going to do you a favor. He released uh, William from his bonds, he pardoned all of his crimes, and then he knighted William there on the spot, giving him now a noble heritage. And William was able to compete. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the film because it's pretty much the end and you can figure it out, I'm sure. Uh, and so if you want to watch that later. But as I look at this and, and I see this, this encounter, I see how it relates to us as Christians. Because before we came to Christ, before we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were not of noble birth. And so therefore we were not able to or qualified to compete in the battle. We were slaves to the enemy. The Bible says we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan. We were of the kingdom of the enemy. We had no place to stand against him because we were in service to him. And even though many of us could do great things in our power, we could do great works, we could achieve great wonders, like, like William, he achieved great victories in battle. None of that was enough to change our situation. We were sadly, were in bondage beyond our understanding. But just like the crown prince had mercy on William, he pardoned him and knighted him. The prince of peace had compassion on us. Romans chapter 4 verse 7 says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven and whose sins are put out of sight. Romans 8, 15, and 16 says, You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. 
Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have not only been pardoned for our crimes, but we have been adopted into the holy family, giving us now a noble heritage. Those who have been adopted into the family of God are now from noble birth. And just like William in the story, we too have been knighted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We too have been commissioned to now to take up arms against the bad guy, the enemy, Satan. And we have not only been given weapons for warfare, but God has also given us armor to wear in this fight for our lives. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says, Therefore... Put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. We have been knighted. We have been adopted. And we've been given army to fight. But this armor isn't given to a retreating army or an army that just pretends like the enemy isn't real or the battle isn't uh, on its way. It's given to an advancing army, to soldiers that have a sound mind filled with the peace that passes all understanding, soldiers who have a heart guarded by righteous deeds bound together in the truth of who they are in Christ, while they slay the forces of evil, wielding the power of God with his word hidden in their hearts and confessed on their lips, protected by their faith in Jesus as the gospel propels them forward on the battlefield toward victory victory. This is the church. Again, the reason we don't see the move of God in our lives the way we want to see, why we still press up against these issues of this oppression of the enemy is because Christians are not standing their ground. We're not even doing the basic by going out and sharing the gospel. We even struggle with inviting people to church. Many of us aren't even wearing the armor. We don't even know what the armor is and remain hiding out in the camp. And the enemy has been free to steal ground in our lives through tricks of manipulation, deception, temptation, and deceit. And thus, we've lived more oppressed and defeated lives than strengthened and victorious. And many people will say, you know what, I was just told that, you know, when I was saved, when I trusted in Christ, that I would be cleansed from all unrighteousness. I wouldn't have to battle the enemy. I wouldn't have to fear, you know, being oppressed or even indwelt by evil spirits. That Jesus delivered me from the kingdom of Satan and broke the power of the devil, cleansing me from every evil thing. So why must I do self-defense? Why must I even be aware of this battle? And the first thing I would say is because we need to understand who we are in Christ and what our identity in Christ says about the reality of this fight for our lives. And we've touched on this a little bit throughout the series, but I want to hammer this down because we need to get this as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We need to have this understanding of what our identity in Christ means for us. The first and foremost we want to discuss today is that we have a high position in Christ. We have a high position. Most of us think, you know, there's nothing good about ourselves. You know, what could we do? But God looks at us, and he sees something very unique and specific. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, the word of God declares that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ, the place of honor. If you think about, you know, a table in medieval times or biblical times, the person at the head of the table was the most uh, important. That's where God dwells. The people right immediately next to them were the most important. That is the place of honor. Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God. And here scripture in Ephesians 2, 6 says we are seated with Christ in that place of honor. Romans 8, 17 says we are joint heirs with Jesus. Not only are we adopted into his family, but we are set to inherit everything God has prepared for Christ. 
And if I have read my Bible right, God has prepared all things to be inherited to Christ. Which means as joint heirs with Jesus, as a child of God, we are set to inherit everything in eternity. Everything is ours. What is Christ is ours. And even 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says, In the judgment, we, the church, are going to judge angels. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty important place in the eternal kingdom. And you see, this is not just who we will be, but this is who we are Hallelujah. right now as the church, right now as the ado- adopted children and sons and daughters of the Most High God. And since Jesus has gone to be with the Father, and he's left us here to continue his work of the gospel ministry, which includes freeing those oppressed by the devil, even ourselves, we can do this without fear. Because Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, he says, look, I have given you what? Authority. Say that again. I have given you authority over all the power of who? The enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. And when he's referring to snakes and scorpions, he's not talking about literal snakes and scorpions, even though I think if you stepped on a scorpion, you'd probably crush it, and vice versa. He continues, he says, don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Those snakes and scorpions is referring to spirits that are venomous, deceptive, sly, cunning, uh, poisonous spirits that mean nothing but to harm you and kill you. He says, don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because what? Your names are registered in heaven. Because of our position in Christ, Jesus has given us his authority. Evil spirits must obey us, for we represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His brand is on our hearts. We are backed by his power, wearing his armor, walking in his authority. And as amazing as the fact that evil spirits must obey us is, as faith-building as that is, Jesus said here in Luke 10, that's not the best part. That's not what you need to focus on. That truth is not is what is going to sustain you when you're struggling. What will sustain you is what he says in verse 20. He says, rejoice, because your name is registered in heaven. Remember who you are and whose you are. And because of whose you are, the spirits will obey you. Matthew 16, 19. Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Jesus is revealing to the church and his disciples here that when he resurrects from the dead, when he dies and comes back from the dead, he's going to take back the keys of the kingdom that Satan stole at the fall, and he's not going to hold on to those keys himself, but he's going to give them to the church. If you are in Christ, you are a member of the church, therefore you hold the keys to the kingdom. You hold them. And not only do you hold the keys of the kingdom, but whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you permit on the earth will be permitted in heaven. Heaven works in step with us. And it's not because God does our bidding. No, it's because we are given his authority to do his will. And when we are doing his will in the world, powerful things happen. It's just as Adam and Eve had God's authority before the fall, they had complete dominion over the earth. Our relationship with God has been restored and we've been given the authority that we lost when sin first entered into the world. 
In other words, by nature of your position and authority in Christ, whatever we allow to happen in the spiritual world will be allowed by heaven, and what we forbid, heaven will also forbid, which means if you forbid the enemy to work in your life, they cannot work. But if you permit them to work, they will work overtime. And because we've ignored our sins, we've believed his lies. Many Christians have permitted the demons to operate in their lives, enabling them to create strongholds and place the child of God to what the Bible calls a spiritual bondage. See, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to say chances are everyone in here is a sinner. Can I get an amen? Everyone in here, you know, sometime or another, there's been some sin. I, I can imagine that. And I probably can guess that there's been some sin or sinful attitude that whether you knew about it or didn't know about it, and you have failed to repent of it. Because I know that's been the case in my life. And we know through the Bible that sin or the enemy is crouching at the door of our hearts. And when we sin against God, we open the door for them to come in and begin to work in our lives. And those doors have remained open because we have failed to properly address our sin and our attitudes and the things that we have done and experienced in this life. And we've allowed what the Bible calls the tormentors to come in and begin their evil work. This is why being filled with the Spirit of God is so vital. Because if we're occupied in the Spirit, we will hear His voice. And one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. So if we're communing with Him, we're walking with Him, we're seeking His guidance, He's going to reveal those areas in our lives that have not been in alignment with, with God's will. So we can bring them back into alignment. As well as the Holy Spirit also gives supernatural gifts to the church. Not just armor that we can stand against and battle against the enemy, but he gives us supernatural gifts in dealing with spiritual issues and revealing the areas the enemy has been at work and how to handle those things. These are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can study that later. But one of those gifts in the list of spiritual gifts is the gift of discernment or discerning of spirits. And Paul encourages the church to seek these gifts of the Holy Spirit because they are beneficial not just for the individual, but vital for the spiritual health of the church. Seeking this gift and walking in this gift will aid in the discovery of affliction in your life that maybe you've been ignorant to for a very long time. Vows that you took as a child that are now affecting you later in life and the like. The Spirit also gives gifts of supernatural knowledge. There have been times I've been ministering with people and, and unbeknownst to me, they were holding some information back and the Spirit told me specifically what they were holding back. When I declared it, it was revealed that's exactly what was holding them in their bondage. And once it was brought to light, they were able to receive deliverance. See, it's not only vital that we seek the filling of God, but it's also vital that we walk in faith, cultivating our gifts. The stronger our faith and our gifts become, the more victory we're gonna see in the self-defense against the enemy. Paul told Timothy in first, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, says, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. You see, a person doesn't become an expert in their spiritual gift the moment they're given by the Holy Spirit. But the moment they're granted, gifts must be practiced in faith, cultivated, and encouraged. You see, faith is synonymous with confidence and boldness. And it takes courage to begin using your faith because 
you know, it is kind of a strange thing. It's not something we're normally used to. It takes courage to begin using your gifts. But once you do, it begins to strengthen you and your confidence whenever you see God begin to work in your life. And when you see God work in your life, it strengthens your confidence and your boldness in using your gifts, making your gifts more powerful, which again then strengthens your faith, making your faith more powerful. Then God uses you in a greater way and so on and so on and so on. It's a cycle. But for you to be used in a powerful way through the Holy Spirit, it takes a first initial step. Saying, God, I surrender to the gifting of your Holy Spirit. And I'm going to start by being faithful in little things so that you can use me in a more powerful way. And there are those who've walked in these gifts for some time. They've written works to help guide the church in learning how to do spiritual battle and recognize the works of the devil so that we could eventually not only set ourselves free, but also work to set others free. But the problems become that for decades, the enemy has blinded the minds of believers to believe that deliverance ministry or this spiritual warfare is a fringe or whacked out idea. This is all a ploy from religious spirits endeavored to keep people trapped in ignorance and in religious bondage. It's a ploy of Satan as a way to maintain control of the children of God and continue to work and hinder the church. And over time, demons get a person who is ignorant and blind to his devices and his schemes to just accept their struggles as part of their personality. This is just who I am in order to lock them further in bondage and maintain control. And you can begin to recognize his work in your life and in the life of others, discerning a spiritual stronghold when you know a person has difficulty avoiding such attitudes and behaviors almost like they can't control it. And they'll say things like, like I, I don't know why I do that. I feel like it's not even me. I don't want to do that, but I just can't help myself. You know, maybe you're here today and you felt like that. You said those things about certain areas of your life. Chances are you're in a bondage and you've been blind to it all along. See, it's important we understand how Satan operates. So Paul, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so he will not outsmart us because we're familiar with his schemes. But just as it's important to know how he works, it's important to know that as a child of God, through the authority of God, we can walk in victory over him and walk in deliverance. The truth about our struggles, according to the word of God, is that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. We are not fighting against mental disorders or predisposed genetics, but against demonic spirits in the kingdom of Satan. There is freedom in Jesus. If how you feel or how you've been living feels like a prison, that's not Jesus. It's the work of the enemy. In John 8, 36, the word of God says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You're free. So if your life feels like prison, then it's not Jesus, because Jesus sets you free. And coming into alignment with that truth will begin to open your eyes to the enemy's work in your life and reveal the truth about your need to walk in self-defense, to wage war against demons in your own life and perfectly position you to begin walking in that deliverance by waging self-defense alongside the Holy Spirit to free yourself of demonic control. This is vitally important for us to know and understand. And now that we understand a little bit why of this is important, why we need to walk in self-deliverance, that we have this identity in Christ where this is possible, we're going to begin talking about how. 
and to walk in self-deliverance. And I'm going to give you three practical steps that you need to do to begin doing this in your own life. We're going to go through this kind of quickly. Number one, actually prior to waging self-defense, prior to walking in spiritual warfare and battle in your own life, the most important thing you can do is to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the most important thing. Without knowing the Lord as your personal Savior, the Spirit, which is the source of power in the life of the believer, is not in you. You have not become one of noble birth. You are not qualified to war against the Spirit. And oftentimes, when spirits are cast out of people who have no relationship with God, they're left worse off than before. But once you are a blood-bought child of God, then you can begin walking in your freedom. And I encourage you today, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, before you leave here, when we close with a time of prayer at the end, I encourage you to come forward and allow me to show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. But once you are a blood-bought child of God, the first and most important step to freedom, number one, is walking in the light. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Walk in the light. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And John chapter 12, verse 35 says, Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they are even going. You see, demons thrive in secrecy. They thrive in the darkness. And secrecy is really just another form of deception. It's saying, I'm okay when I'm not okay. It's presenting yourself to be whole when you're really just broken. It's a lie couched in pride. And when you're unwilling to be open and honest about your struggles, demons have no reason to fear being cast out. What is hidden remains infected and is unable to heal. When we know the scripture, did Jesus say remain in secrecy and the secrecy will set you free? No. He said, remain in the truth, and the truth is what will set you free. You must bring what is dark out into the light. And just like you have to admit that you're a sinner and in need of a Savior before you can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in order to walk in the light and be delivered, you have to be able to admit you have a problem and confess your sins to one another before you can be delivered. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James tells the church, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is another word for delivered. Jesus said to walk in the light so the darkness cannot overtake you. What happens when you bring what is hidden into the light is that the darkness can no longer touch it. James is telling us to confess our sins not just to God but to each other. And this is a truth I've wrestled with my entire life. And what I have found in my own life is that as long as I kept the strongholds to myself, my struggles to myself, my temptations to myself, the lure and the power of my issues were greater than what I could handle. I fell and I succumbed to them every time. And I began to wonder what was wrong with me and even question my own salvation at times. But the truth is, I was really just worshiping my pride, thinking I was strong enough and could beat these issues myself. I didn't need anyone. That if God would forgive me, and I know he forgave me when I asked, that's all I needed. Yet I continued to wrestle with the same problem over and over and over again, and I never saw freedom. But once I confessed the issues, and they were brought to light, some of them even being dragged out of me, it was like a huge weight was lifted. The power of the demonic forces working in my life was broken, and I was able to be set free. 
I realized that it took a little humility to confess my sins to God, but it took a lot of humility to be able to turn and confess my sins to someone else. Because I was afraid of what people would think of me. But as long as we stay silent, we will stay stuck in pride for fear of what others may say. But what's more powerful than what other people think and what they will say is the power of God to free people who are lost in darkness. And I truly believe that until you walk in honesty, that you walk in the light, you will continue to empower the spirits within you, keeping you locked into spiritual prisons of torment. It takes humility to admit faults and admit weakness. Paul, to the church of the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he reveals to them a conversation that he had with, with the Lord when he was praying about deliverance in a certain area of his life. And in verse 9, Paul says, each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. And I know for men, especially because I am one, that admitting weakness is a really difficult thing because you're taught from a very young age, don't cry, be tough. Handle it, be a man. But Jesus revealed to Paul that it's only until you can admit your weakness and realize that you don't need the approval of men, what you need is God's grace. It's in that moment that you unleash the power of God in your life to do a great work. Paul responded to Jesus basically by saying, aha, I have the key. I have the key to being free. So I humble myself, accept my weakness, and and share my weakness, and, and it's through that that I unleash the power of God in my life. You see, we've had it backwards this whole time. We think if we act strong and we try to muscle through, that that eventually we'll win. But what happens when we try to act strong, keep things close to the chest, walk in pride, we end up digging ourselves deeper into bondage and often hurt the people we love in the process. Trying to keep things secret. In order to walk in the light, we have to first and foremost be honest with ourselves. We have a problem. Take it to the Lord, but then be humble enough to confess our sins to each other so that we can be healed. When we humble ourselves and we confess our sins one to another, we confess where we're struggling. That is an open invitation for the Spirit of God, who is the power of His or source of the power of God in us, to begin working on deliverance, healing, and restoration. First thing is we need to walk in the light. Second thing is we need to clean the house. In the Old Testament, God gave the nation of Israel many different feasts. One of those was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as they were preparing for this feast, it was customary and it was a tradition because of a command of God that they were to go through the house and sweep it clean. They were to get rid of all the yeast in the house. Imagine that, like especially like a medieval time, you're in a grass hut, dirt on the floor, and you're to sweep the whole house looking for yeast. That probably would have been a challenge. But they were to get rid of all the yeast in the home because in that feast, that ceremony, yeast represented sin. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, you removed all the sin from the home, representing removing what was defiling the family. And we know this represents how through our faith in Christ, that through the blood of Christ, we are cleansed from all sin when our standing is restored with God. But this is also a picture of what we call repentance. Cleaning the house is also repentance. And as we clean the house, there are really two aspects that we need to process through is repentance and renunciation. 
Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. It's by making a conscious effort to live differently. And part of repentance is what is called restitution. This is where you try to repair what's been broken or, or, or make right uh, what has been done wrong. It's where lazy people begin to work harder. Liars commit to walk in honesty. Thieves stop stealing and walk in generosity, etc. It's where you turn your life around and be heading in a, begin heading in a new direction. And, and here, as we're looking at cleaning the house, we need to be turning away from sin and turning away from the things that have brought the bondage into our lives. You know, it's where an alcoholic stops drinking, a porn, porn addict stops looking at pornography. These are the things we, we're saying, I'm done with this. I'm going in a new direction especially when it comes to demonism and spiritual warfare, if you've been involved in any type of occultic or cultic activity and you have paraphernalia of demonic influence or anything uh, of spiritual nature in your home that is not of God, just like they remove the yeast, we need to remove every aspect of uh, our oppression in our lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, God told the nation of Israel, you must burn your idols in fire. You must not covet the silver or gold that covers them. You must not take it or it will become a trap to you, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring any detestable objects into your home, for then you will be destroyed just like them. You must utterly detest such things, for they are set apart for destruction. Idolatry in the Bible is synonymous with uh, the worship of demons. And we have the ability to make idols out of a lot of different things in our lives. And when we fall into bondage, we see these strongholds in our lives. It's because we've, been got, we've gotten caught up worshiping something other than God in our life. We've opened the door to the worship of something, opening a door to the demonic in our lives. And if we want freedom from this oppression and this control of the enemy, God is telling the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy here that you must remove, you must get rid of any and everything that has been connected to that oppression, to that worship that is aided in your bondage. You must get rid of everything that has uh, been preventing your deliverance. Literally burn by fire anything that is associated with the worship of the devil. In the New Testament, Jesus said that in the nature of if you had a problem with lust, to gouge out your eyes if you're having a problem with lust, that it's better to be blind than to burn. That the, the, before God, we were to have no association with our sin and do whatever is necessary to remove sin from our lives. So the point is that if you want to be free from demonic oppression, you want to be free from these strongholds, you need a clean break. You need a clean break. And if you choose to hold anything back or hold on to anything in relation to your sin, you're really just choosing to remain to be in alignment with the devil who's in direct opposition of the nature and character of God. You're choosing to hold on to your sin and remain defiled and thus remain in bondage. When you walk in repentance, you begin self-defense. You're cleansing your life from what defiles you, getting rid of what is in the way between you and God, and you're placing yourself in the center of God's blessing. And by walking in repentance... You are showing God by faith the demonic spirits that you're fighting that you will worship the one true God and him alone and that your body will remain the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And renunciation, the second part of that, is essentially forsaking all that is evil. Proverbs 8.13 says, All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. This term for fear, as far as the fear of the Lord, can also mean honor or respect. Those who truly honor God will hate evil. But the reason why we get tripped up and we get in these bondages and strongholds, for many of us, including myself and my own experience, why we haven't found freedom yet is because we don't truly hate our sin. We don't truly hate what is evil. And the enemy's deceived us to make us feel like, yeah, it's not as bad as what it really is. I can do that just every once in a while. I mean, every once in a while, it's not going to hurt me, right? You know, we try to talk ourselves out. We believe the lies of the enemy, that our sin's not as bad as what it is, that his lies aren't really lies. But the truth is, if you fear God, you're going to hate evil. You're going to hate it. Which means we come out of agreement with the enemy. Amos chapter 3 prophet says, can two people walk in the same direction and not be in agreement? How can you say you're walking with God, but yet still walking with Satan? Certain places in your life. We have to come out of agreement with the enemy. We have to renounce all participation with sin and his work in our lives if we want to be free. Renunciation means a clean break of any tie or affiliation to come out of agreement with and put away the sin once and for all. And when you're repenting of your sins before God, you're turning away from your sin and beginning to walk in repentance. Not only should we repent of our sin, we should renounce it in the name of Jesus. I renounce this sin in Jesus' name. Repentance and renunciation is what is necessary to clean the house. And finally, number three is prayer and warfare. And this is important. There is a distinction between prayer and warfare. The difference between prayer and warfare is that prayer is appealing to God's sovereignty. Warfare is walking in Christ's authority. Prayer is appealing to God's sovereignty while warfare is walking in Christ's authority. As it pertains to prayer, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we'll receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. It doesn't take a lot of boldness to pray silently. It takes far more boldness to pray out loud and boldly, especially when you're in a group of people. But I believe there is a powerful nature to our words. There is power in our words. God gave us language for a reason. Jesus said, what you say flows from your heart. And I believe if a person truly wants to be free, they will declare with their mouth what they mean with their heart. They'll speak it out loud. They'll declare it with all that they are. And we must remember as children of God, the price for our sin has already been paid by Christ. His work is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. We should be ashamed of the sinful things that we do in our life to recognize, yes, those things are wrong, but we don't have to be ashamed to approach God because God says, I want to work in your life. I want to cast my love on you. I want to bring peace. I want to deliver you. He wants our deliverance more than we do because he wants to see good things for us. He has good plans for us. He has a way that leads to life and righteousness. We don't need to be ashamed to approach God because it is through God that we'll receive what we need. He's eager to cleanse us of every evil thing. When we go to God in prayer, we know that we meet a loving Father who will rescue us when we call. 
And we can believe with our whole hearts that he will create within us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. In step three of self-defense, as we go to prayer, we first pray to the Father for forgiveness. God, forgive me of what I've done. Forgive me of how I've participated with evil. Forgive me of these things that have dishonored your name. Cleanse me and deliver me. But then after we pray, the second is we go to war. We then speak to the spirits that bind us as an act of warfare. And it's important to know we do not pray to demons because we're not asking them to do anything. We are commanding them in the Lord's authority. And we're declaring to them that through the blood of Christ and the authority of Jesus' name, they have no right to indwell and oppress us any longer, and they must go. We ask God because he is the sovereign ruler of all creation, but we do not ask the spirits, which is witchcraft. When you ask the spirits for things that is the same as witchcraft, it's involving them and seeking their power and authority for a certain thing. We're not asking them anything. They're not in control because Jesus is. And we command them in the name of Jesus. Just as a good parent recognizes that their authority in the home, they don't ask their children to obey, appealing to the child's authority. You know, I don't see parents going around and be like, hey, you know, if you think about it, would you maybe consider obeying the thing I asked you to do? No. A good parent doesn't do that. They recognize they have the authority. You're going to do this. If not, there's going to be a consequence. The same thing is what is in the child of God when it comes to spiritual warfare. See, Jesus, who has authority over us, he didn't say, if you think about it, church, or if you get around to it, maybe you could go someplace and tell somebody about me that, you know, maybe, you know, if you get around to it, it'd be a good thing to do. No, he said, church, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all things I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. He commanded us and says, this command I give you to love one another as I have loved you. The one in authority commands those who are under their authority. When one is in authority, you don't ask the one under the authority. You command them by nature of your position. For that position is given to us by God. So we command the spirits. We command them to go. And we declare that they have no part in our lives any longer. James chapter 5, verse 16, says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. When we pray for deliverance, when we seek God for deliverance, we need to have what is called earnest prayers or prayers of faith. A prayer of faith can only be accomplished when a person is fully committed to the promises of God. Jesus promised demons must obey. Therefore, in faith, you must continue to war against them until you see the fulfillment of that promise and war against them by name until you see the manifestation of their deliverance. If we desire to truly be free, we will walk in self-defense. We will first walk in the light. We'll humble ourselves and say, this is who I am. This is where I'm struggling. God, help me and send me some people that I can walk through this with me too. If we truly want to be free, we're going to clean the house. We're going to repent of our sin. We're going to renounce all participation. Or we're going to begin following God's will and ways for our life. And finally, we're going to pray. We're going to spend time with God. We're going to commune with his Holy Spirit. And we're going to walk in the authority and declaring that the enemy has no power over us anymore. Jesus said, those who follow me will cast out demons. They'll free those oppressed by the devil. 
This is our calling as a church until he returns. And we can continue to act like our struggles are just our struggles, living in the dark, living depressed and defeated lives, or we can believe that Jesus, who said he came to give us life, and life more abundantly has something more in store for us, if we would just trust him. And church, I today, I choose to believe Jesus. I choose to believe freedom is possible. I choose to believe that you don't have to struggle with that addiction anymore, that you can be free, like totally free. I believe that you don't have to struggle with those mental torments anymore. I believe you can be totally free because who the Son has set free is truly free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not only do I believe that you can be free today, I believe that if we all would choose to surrender our lives to the Lord, to submit ourselves to his will, and not only walk in self-defense for our own freedom, but begin walking in faith to see other people free, we're going to see a move of God like we've never seen before. In closing, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is doing his ministry, and he passes by two blind men who begin calling out to him. And in verse 32, it says, when Jesus heard them, he stopped and called and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, they wanted to see again. They wanted to have their sight returned to them. They said, Lord, have mercy on us. Give us our sight. We want to see. And Jesus healed them and set them free. And I believe that the Lord is asking us the same question today. He's asking you this question. We're two or more gathered in his name. He's here in the midst. I believe the Lord is here. I believe the spirit of God is in this place. I believe we have the ear of God right now. And I believe God is asking us the very same question. What do you want me to do for you today? What do you want me to do? And if the answer is I need to be set free, I've got some things in my life I've, I've just not been able to beat. In just a moment, when we open the service for, for prayer, I encourage you to come down and begin walking in self-defense. Start walking in the light. Begin to clean the house and begin praying and warring for your soul. As we close, I'm gonna ask every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. In just a moment, I'll be down here in the front and I'm gonna ask the elders that are available to be down in the front to begin available to pray with those who would like prayer. We'll go to war with you. We'll be praying with you and over you for the things in your life. But right here in this moment, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if there's never been a time in your life where you said, I recognize I'm a sinner, and I know that I need God in my life, then today is the day you become a new person right here where you are to go from a servant of the enemy to a child of noble birth, right where you are. You can pray this prayer with me. Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul tells the church of Rome, if you confess Jesus with your mouth and you believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart you believe into salvation, but it's with the mouth confession is made. And right here where you are, you can confess with your mouth, Jesus is your Lord. You can declare this day to be the day you invite him to be the Lord of your life, and he will do a marvelous work in you. He'll start bringing what's been dead into the light. 
and breathe life into it. And you become part of his church, part of a family, part of a movement. You'll know your purpose. You'll begin to see his plan at work in your life as you begin walking from victory to victory rather than defeat to defeat. Right here where you are, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I challenge you right now to pray this with me. Say, Father in heaven, I know I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. Please forgive me. I turn away from all that now. And I renounce any part of it in my life, in Jesus' name. I trust in your son, in his death, in his resurrection. And I, and I, de- and I, de- I declare to be my Lord and Savior. Send your Holy Spirit into my heart to empower me to live for you this day forward. In Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, I just want to pray for those that maybe made that first step of faith today. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you just slip your hand up and say, Joey, I prayed that prayer. I accepted Christ. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Father, I just pray for those that raised their hand today. God, you saw those that took that first step. Lord, that is the first step to deliverance. That is the first step to breaking free from the kingdom of the enemy. So God, that is the most vital part of the armor is the helmet of salvation. God, we thank you for the work that you're doing in this place today and in the lives. God, I pray for those that raised their hand today, that they would feel the love of Christ wash over them in the name of Jesus that the peace that passes all understanding would begin to fill them up now in the name of Jesus. God, that they would recognize that they are part of a bigger story, that they have a role in a bigger plan, and God, that you have good things set for them from this day forward. God, I just pray that we as a church could continue to encourage them and love on them on their spiritual journey. And Lord, that you begin blessing them as you reveal your life and your will and your ways. Through Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet together. As the band begins to sing and play, if you have a need and you have things on your heart, you have areas in your life you'd like prayer, I invite you to come down and we'll be happy to pray with you or you can pray by yourself here at the front altar. Thank you.